the venture capital space is not for the faint of heart. But if you pay attention and do your homework, there are rewarding partnerships and alliances to be made. Steve Brotman of Alpha Partners looks for those relationships. They work with early-stage VCs to solve the capital gap that many first funders struggle with when it comes to future rounds of funding. Steve talks to Kevin about making connections and interesting market segments in the current economy. Today, I'd like to welcome Steve Brotman, the managing partner of Alpha Partners in New York City. Steve is an entrepreneur, investor, and fund manager and serves also as a strategic advisor to the Pritzker Group's venture arm, Pritzker Group Venture Capital. Steve, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So rather than read off a a, a lengthy bio, which is very, very impressive, uh, I just thought I would pass it to you to give us a little bit of background on yourself, uh, your education, your work experience, and how that led you to Alpha Partners and what you're doing today. Um, actually, I grew up in Texas. My uh, father was a radiologist and uh, got an opportunity to work in South Texas in Harlingen. And um, so we actually moved down there from the East Coast. And uh, I ended up learning a great deal about that. You learn a lot about uh, how different people operate, and but also how people are so similar in, in so many ways mm-hmm. and uh, a lot more ways than you might think. And in any case, I ended up going to school. I went to boarding school in Massachusetts and then came back down to uh, Duke to do my undergrad in economics and then worked in Charlotte for a little bit at Accenture doing programming. They called it consulting, but it was basically programming and, and system design and architecture. And that actually had a great big influence on my life, except there was a recession in the early 90s. And uh, I lost my job. And uh, so I decided to go back to school and uh, started a law degree at Washington University in St. Louis. And after a year, I realized that I really didn't want to settle legal cases. I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to litigate legal cases. I wanted to, when, when when two parties were arguing in a case study, I wanted to raise my hand and say, well, why don't they just settle it? Why don't they just settle, settle out that agreement? And uh, that wasn't the point of the case study. The case study is a <laughs> point of, of law, like why someone is more right than another party. You must win, Steve. You must yes. win in law. Well, so I, after the first semester, I realized that maybe the law wasn't my calling. And uh, I ended up uh, transferring to the, the business school at WashU, which is at the Olin School, which was really remarkable, really transformed. I really just became much more energized and excited. And after the end of that year, I, I, I started... I had the choice of whether I finish out my business degree in another year or get a joint JD MBA. And so I decided to continue with my joint JD MBA. And I worked with a number of, um, in, this is St. Louis, mind you, so not necessarily a massive financial capital, but I worked with a commercial bank investigating a venture capital firm uh, formation. You know, I was hired as, a, as, a, as an intern, if you will. And then, then uh, I, I also worked for a, a startup VC and then an investment bank. And this investment bank was taking companies public, young companies, and raising maybe 10 or $20 million at relatively low market caps. And, but I was really just amazed by the entrepreneurs and they were building what they had built and their ideas about how to change the world. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And my mentor 
in St. Louis, Chris Polly at Polly and Company said, oh, well, I worked for Bear Stern. You should go to New York and work, work at Bear Stern. And it's an investment bank. And so I went there sort of very naively, and I got a position as a summer associate on the uh, CMO desk, which mm-hmm. is about as far away as you can get from entrepreneurship yeah. as you can. But you sort of have to, you know, you, you get the opportunity that you can. After that summer, uh, I decided to transfer to Columbia. And, you know, just because that's, you know, New York, there's a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. in finance. Ultimately, came, you know, really had an epiphany that I didn't want to be a, a lawyer and I didn't want to be a stock trader or an investment banker. I was depressed for about a week. And I decided I had an idea to start a company. And I talked to the professor of entrepreneurship at Columbia, a guy named Murray Lowe, and he suggested I take his class. And long story short, one of the first classes was about the internet and how this was growing and how it was going to be the next big thing. And that was the assignment is to, we all, all the, at, the, at that particular point in time, the internet wasn't graphical, wasn't video, it was all text. Um, mm-hmm. And so we used a Lynx browser to, to, to surf the internet. And so I went down into the stacks, into the library system and started doing you know, diligence in terms of what would make sense in this sort of text-based world. And as I was flipping through some encyclopedias about the publishing industry, looking at book publishing and newspaper publishing, magazine publishing, I came across an interesting section on newspapers. And it turns out there are 1,500 daily newspapers in the country and 7,500 weeklies. Many of these are small and mid-sized papers that really couldn't, didn't really have the technical chops to do their own online publishing. And so it really struck me that maybe I could work with some of those small publishers and provide some technical expertise uh, to help them publish their papers. And as I dug into it, I realized that 80 or 90% of their profits of these newspapers came from classified advertising, which are really printed out text databases. And then uh, the following- Pretty much what Craigslist overtook- when it came out, Craigslist and eBay actually, and eBay. So this yeah, is this correct. is pre Craigslist and eBay. So, but this is sort of on the inside of the incumbent. So there's jobs and autos and knickknacks and all sort all different types of categories. Even dating was a category. It was a twenty billion dollar industry at the time, wow. and this is really what drove newspaper profits. Today, if if you think about the internet, and most many businesses are actually classified ad businesses. And that turned into many, many billions of dollar business or trillions of dollars, actually. So we were right place, right time, wrong niche. Because <laughs> mm. newspapers, you know, basically took it in the neck and lost to eBay and Craigslist, et cetera. We had actually gotten venture backed by the Pritzker family. Uh, J.B. Pritzker, this was one of his first investments that he made as a VC. And then later... Um, we were backed by uh, Venrock, a storied venture firm, uh, mm-hmm. Ray Rothrock and Jason, Jason Green, who's now at Emergence. And this is amongst their first you know, internet investments and uh, ultimately sold to Hearst after aggregating over half the newspaper industry. And we sold, we sold that and I was able to buy a nice starter home in New Jersey with my new wife at the time and start a family, which was great. And then at that point, decided... I wanted to get into investing and I knew a thing or two about 
about being an entrepreneur. And so I started a seed fund with a million dollars, <laughs> which is really kind of stupid. It was my own money and, and another family friend. And you know, we went out and said, hey, we have a new fund, Silicon Alley Venture Partners with $1 million. And uh, our first investment that we made was a, person, a company called Live Person, and it went public 18 months later. Oh, wow. So, so falling, falling in the category of rather being lucky than smart, uh, we ended up raising 15 million. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, that wasn't my money. I, I made a fee on that 15 million. Um, but I was able to, you know, my needs were pretty small. And uh, I had a small team and I had some savings. So we went about investing that money. And uh, the, the downturn hit, the dot-com bust in 2000. And the good news is uh, most of my money actually came from other VCs. And those VCs gave me some pretty good advice. Steve Jurvetson from um, uh, yeah. Future Ventures amongst them. And uh, actually, Steve is also a, a Texan. And uh, he, uh, he said to me, Steve, this, this boom isn't going to last. Just invest in it, try and get as much diversity and put, it, put smaller bites into, into larger number of companies and be slow about it. Be patient. And uh, he was right. So when the, when the bust hit, we had about 40% of fund, that fund deployed and we had 60% to deploy in the, in the downturn. And uh, we ended up investing in a company called Metadata Solutions. Metadata, um, what they did was they shortened the clinical trial cycle for drug discovery by a year. Oh, wow. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, you could save a year of your process. That's worth millions and millions of dollars per day. And they charged a couple hundred thousand dollars of so for software. And um, uh, we bought about 20% of the company for a million dollars in 2003, I think, 2002, 2003 timeframe. And ultimately, the company grew to about $10 million in revenue, and they were raising another round. They raised another $10 million at a $25 million valuation. And our fund at the time was only $15 million, and we couldn't put a, you know, a fifth of our fund into the deal. What we, what, what we had was a pro rata right. Since we owned 20% of the company, we had the right to invest 20% of that round, of that successor round. And 20% of 10 million is $2 million. And we, we passed up on that, right? In fact, we took a little bit of money off the table. Five years later, the company goes public and Silicon Alley Venture Partners makes 33 times our money. So 33 times a million is $33 million. That's twice our fund one, which is great. That's typically what you're looking for in a venture fund to return two and a half to three times your money. And it's highly dependent on one winner like this. So we were able to, to get that done. And uh, however, there was another firm, uh, the firm that led it was called Insight Partners. And Insight made 20 times their money. So they made 20 times $10 million, which is $200 million. And so they made far more than we did. And on top of that, because they focused on later stage investments, they don't have a lot of wipeouts in their portfolio. So mm -hmm. that, that, Ultimately, they get 20% of the profits. So they made $40 million on that deal as VCs. And they made their LPs $200 million. Whereas my fund, you know, we did okay. We made a, a couple million dollars, but, and I'm not sad about that. You know, split amongst my partners for 10 years of work, you know, that's a body of work. So, you know, we were fairly compensated, but it really stuck in my mind that they were 
potentially dozens, if not hundreds of VCs like Silicon Valley Venture Partners that had these sort of valuable pro rata rights that they couldn't use. So that's really the genesis for Alpha Partners. Uh, you know, Silicon Alley Venture Partners, we ended up raising, we actually were acquired by Greenhill in 2006. We raised a $100 million fund with them. And in 2011, I was recruited by the Pritzker family, the same Pritzkers who invested in my first fund. And they wanted me to do more to help them out grow their presence in New York. And in, in 2012, I came to them and I said, listen, I have this idea. And I, I'm, I told them the metadata story. And they're like, that's really interesting. Um, we're in. I was like, what do you mean we're in? He's like, well, you're going to raise a fund, right? So <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I am Let's now. Go. I am now. <laughs> um, and, and that's really how Alpha got started is from, from folks believing in, what, in, in, in our vision. And we started with a $10 million fund. And then we, a couple of years later, we raised a $50 million fund. Um, now we have a $150 million fund. And uh, um, it's been been a great run, and we've invested in over twenty five companies, and um, it's been been a great great experience, sort of leveraging a real substantial inefficiency in the market that uh, a lot of venture firms are ill equipped to to try and go after, and 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 basically what we do is we offer other VCs a portion of the carry that my fund gets up to half the carry we give to other VCs. And that's what motivates those VCs. We, we now partner with 725 VCs to essentially to cherry pick their best opportunities. And if you think about, from my perspective, instead of competing against 3000 VCs, we've effectively made partners of a third of the VCs now think of us as a partner. I just got off the phone before this podcast with a, a VC in Chicago who has two opportunities. They did the C and the A, but they can't do the B and the C. Would we be interested in, in participating? And it takes, it takes a long time to build up that reputation and be able to quickly move into the sector. The, the size of the opportunity you know, ranges, depends on how you think of it, but it's, it's well north of $30 billion in terms of the, the, num- the amount of expiring pro rata rights that happen every year on use. So that's that's our backstory. Well, you know, I think that was the last piece about the structure of Alpha, the process that you take to, and this is these are your words because I don't think we can necessarily say them from a compliance standpoint on my end. So, on, on your words, de-risk the venture capital space in essence. And one thing we do know from research is that the, as a fiduciary, we have to look at asset classes as a whole and then come down and spearfish at some level if we're going to invest with a manager. And one thing that we do know is that manager persistence is almost non-existent in every asset class other than venture capital. And so you have really found a way to partner with those who are at the front end of their winning streak, if that makes sense. And then also partner with those who are smack dab in the middle of their winning streak and are part of that top quartile manager set that is going to persist and create their own economics and their own return structures moving forward. And so we hear so often uh, reviewing hundreds of, of deals a year, many of them being early seed stage 
venture capitals is uh, venture capital funds talking to the partners and we're going to increase operational efficiency and we're going to bring our network and we like fintech or we like prop tech or we you know and, and it's nothing against them they're all brilliant in what they do but the what their pitch is the same it's there's nothing different about it they're taking the same risk that everyone else is and they're sitting in the same pool of those who have yet to have any type of persistence moving forward. So finding alpha partners and finding your team was a way for us to, as a fiduciary, come to our families at our multifamily office and say, listen, we really think this is a great way for you to look at this space, especially if we're looking at things that are multi-generational. You know, I I look at alpha partners as a wonderful holding for a number of our multi-generational entities that we invest in for our clients. You know, speaking of that, you know, we, we talked about this being a very niche space. Are there any barriers to entry in this space? And who would your biggest competitors be in this kind of follow-on capital, venture capital structure? They're, they're, the, the interesting piece of the asset management business, it is highly competitive. There, there are over 2,000 VCs, for instance, in the U.S. About 3% of those VCs manage north of a billion dollars about a third manage between 100 million and a billion and about 63% manage less than 100 million. And so we, we really partner with those, the, those 1,200 VCs with less than 100 million. And most investors kind of ignore the $25 million fund manager, the $50 million fund manager and focus all their time on the large and managers. And they, they have a hard time believing that a small manager might have a good opportunity. And so part of part of the barrier is that there's a lot of belief that these smaller VCs don't have great opportunities. And the reality is in there, if you, I mean, you can go on to PitchBook and see for yourself or, or TechCrunch and 80% of, of the unicorns, the technology, the technology winning companies, 80% have one of these smaller VCs on their cap table. They can't use their best, you know, so like just by definition, this happens to be true. Now we've been doing this since uh, 20, 2013. There are a variety of fund of funds that try and do this, um, that they'll invest in 20 or 30 VCs and then try and cherry pick from those funds, not giving any further kind of economics to the, to the GPs involved. That's probably the closest competitor. The next closest competitor is a GP, a venture fund that's is like, hey, we should start a growth fund and try and do these opportunities ourselves. That's a really hard thing to do because if you're managing 50 million, you're barely able to raise $50 million, let alone raise a $100 million growth fund. If you can do that, you know, you would be a $100 million plus fund. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so there's really these, it's, it's really just these smaller, smaller funds just don't have the capacity, the capability like if you invested in an early stage fund and they approached you saying, hey, we're going to do a pre-IPO round, you'd be like, what are you doing? I yeah. underwrote you to do early stage, not growth fund investing. And yeah. so that's, that's really a pretty, pretty substantial barrier. Um, the other thing is you really, to do what we do, you actually have to, we're, we, we are partners with other VCs. And so mm-hmm. you really have to be a VC. And we I've been a VC for now almost 25 years. You have to be a VC to do what we do. It's it's sort of it's just just 
VCs can only talk to, if, if you have a great opportunity in your portfolio, you're a hedge fund manager and you get a call and, and you call a VC out of the blue, they're going to be like, who the hell are you? Yeah. It's really important to have a five because remember, these are their best deals, not just okay opportunities. They've been on the boards for years. They have a fiduciary duty not to share that information widely or, and especially not to competitors or folks outside of their, 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 their um, venture fund. And so, you know, it really takes a special person to be able to work with these smaller VCs and understand what their motivation is and, and really to, to be able to suss out what are their best opportunities. It's actually a lot harder than you might think. So the other aspect is, so you have to have venture experience, but if you're a successful VC, why would you change clothes and decide, hey, I'm going to throw away my venture track record and do yeah. what Alpha does? And if you're a bad VC and haven't done very well as a VC, why would you, no one's going to give you any money. If someone came to you and said, hey, I was a horrible VC and I want to do what Alpha's doing now, you'd look at them and like, you just destroyed value before. Yeah. So it's actually, so, so to a degree, they're just by, almost by definition, you know, we don't have a ton of competition. I think, um, you know, it's also kind of hard to do. What we do isn't easy. It sounds easy. You have to move relatively quickly and you have to, you, know, you have to trust the partners that you're involved with. Yeah, that's so your your pitch is not is not simply here's capital. Your pitch is here's a new partner, right. someone that's going to be making decisions as well. That's that's different than just a, a check at the end of the day. Yeah, that's right. So we'll see how persistent uh, this is. And the biggest reaction we often get from VCs is, "Oh, wow, that's a great idea. I wish I had done that." It's it's flattering. But just like yourself, you're in the investment management business, you talk to one of your clients and they're like, oh, what you're doing is easy. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. now also, now we're pretty much in, the, in, the, in a leadership position. We've proven out this strategy over 10 years. So if a, an LP wants to invest in this sector, they're not going to want to invest in someone who's got a one-year track record or a two-year track record. You know, we're always going to be 10 or 15 years downstream now. So we're, 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 we plan to be the Kleenex of the sector. And uh, I gotcha. think, you know, like KKR is in sort of the buyout arena yeah. um, or well, you know, you know, there are other well-known financial brands in their sectors. I think Alpha is going to be that for Colorado rights. Gotcha. So I think one thing that is on the mind, at least most of the families with whom I speak every day is the uh, a looming recession. So staring at a potential recession and a rising cost of capital, what does the future look like for Alpha in that environment? Yeah, this is, this is where when, when you and I met originally and I laid out how we, how we think of things, I think this is how, why we get along so well, is that I've gone through two recessions. Now, some of, some of your listeners here might have gone through more than that. Uh, I guess you could call COVID you know, half a recession. Um, yeah. You know, it was a blip. Some, it was a little <laughs> bit of a blip. But having gone through the Boston in 2000 and 2008, as a VC, having gone through that, I, there was no way I was going to go through another recession and lose, say, half my companies. It's just painful. They're like children. Yeah. Like you just can't, you can't, you know, you, you, you just never recover from that. 
And despite all the great things that they're doing, I saw we had an, a company generating $80, $100 million in revenue. And the next week it was dead, gone. Uh, we had another company that was in the sort of the gift currency space doing $200 million in revenue. And it got hit by Russian credit card fraud. And the next oh. that, the weekend, it was gone. And, you know, it's like, holy cow. So I've gotten more as a, as a, as an investor, one thing that we, we look, we, there is actually a a pretty substantial body of work that, that I pulled on. We call the seven C's that we specifically look for certain things within the portfolio. Category leadership is one of them. Proximity to, to, to profitability, a top tier lead investor. So good governance a uh, high growth rate between 50 and 100% or more scale. So over like 20, 20, $100 million in revenue, all of these things are risk mitigations against uh, uh, an adverse event like a recession. So all those things incrementally help. But the last one is we actually look for companies that are going to be uh, recession resistant or recession or do well in recessions. And so what do I, what sectors do I mean uh, yeah. by that? Those are companies that when a recession hits, either, either they're essential services that people are not going to give up on. Think, think like basic cable. You're not going to unplug your basic cable mm-hmm. or electricity or internet service now or education or your car. Now you might trade down a bit, but you still need some way to, to get around. I'm trying to relate to consumer side. In, in venture, there are several sectors or more than several sectors that are highly resistant to downturns. One of them is healthcare tech. Hmm. Um, so we're over the last year, we've been, and actually over the last 10 years, we are, we're an investor in two companies in this, well, three, four companies in that sector. One was a company called Dr. On Demand, and it was a telemedicine play. And at the time, 1% of all, all doctor visits were telemedicines, telemedicine visits. And it didn't make sense to us because a telemedicine visit is half the cost to, 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 to provision and, and supply than an actual doctor visit. You take out the real estate that a doctor has, like 30 or 40% of the cost of going to a doctor's office is paying for the doctor's office office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And then their nurses and their staff and all that stuff. And, you know, that alone is, is pretty substantial. And then, you know, the time it takes for a person to go to the doctor's office, then wait on average 15 minutes before you see a doctor, all those things make it so that 1% just, and by the way, that segment was growing at 90% a year. Doctor in demand was one of the leaders in this segment and it's a multi, you know, hundred billion dollar segment. And so as an example, what we, in a recession, people are going to gravitate to lower priced products that are more convenient, that provide more selection. So like for telemedicine, you can visit with any specialist anywhere in the world. If you're depending now, if you're in an urban center, maybe you have access to great specialists, but anywhere else you're going to have to, you're, you're going to have trouble. So, so it was, at, and if it's half the cost and 10 times more convenient. I mean, we're doing this all over Zoom. So to be able to do that, it just made a tremendous amount of sense that why not invest in recession-resistant companies like this 
that are actually going to do better in recessions, that are growing in boom times, growing at 50 to 100%. And during recessions, they're going to continue growing at that rate. So that's sort of the template. The two other health tech companies that I, uh, we were involved with are in the um, chronic care conditions uh, mm-hmm. treatment mm-hmm. space. That's Roman Health and 30 mm-hmm. Madison. Gotcha. And both treat conditions like, well, not, not they, they treat different conditions. Uh, Roman focuses on erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. and, and other segments. 30 Madison focuses on hair loss, GI issues, migraine issues, dermatology issues, uh, and, the, and the like. And actually, they just acquired NERCs, which focuses on reproductive health. And, you know, these are chronic, you know, sadly, reproduction is a chronic condition, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, good, no. good, yeah. good, good news for, for, uh, for the human race. But, um, you know, these are all conditions that can be treated through telemedicine and with pharmaceutical products that are well-tolerated. And the issue with a lot of these conditions is you might, there might be 15 to 30 different drugs that you can try out. A specialist just doesn't have the time to meet with you and say, Hey, try this, try that. Well, what, what do you, you know, were you exposed to light? What did you eat the day before? All these different factors. So doing this over telemedicine makes a great degree of of sense. So, and in a recession, are you just not going to treat your GI issues? Right. Are yeah, you, you still have, it's chronic illness. You, right. It's, it's there always. Right. So if you can treat it cheaper and more conveniently with higher selection, you're going to go that way. So, so we like recession resistant companies um, as, as one of, in addition to all the things that you look for that are indications of a, of a, of a great business. The other segments uh, that we like beyond healthcare are cybersecurity. Uh, we actually just made our first cybersecurity investment called some Paris. Um, some Paris uh, protects against phishing attacks. Mm-hmm. And about 90% of US corporations have uh, use a Microsoft Active Directory. And Active Directory is like the username password for 90% of American corporations. So if you can, if you can protect that and then help those companies recover from those attacks, that cybersecurity spends, uh, spending is going up about 40% CAGR every year. It's growing from 15% of Fortune 500 budgets to 25% this year. It's the last thing that a corporation is going to pull. The CEO is not going to be like, oh, yeah, let's stop, let's stop investing in yeah. cybersecurity this month. That, yeah. that could be the last decision that CEO makes. But well, and, and I think for any... CEO, you know, or even CTO who looks at the logs of, of the attacks. I mean, I see the logs, uh, you know, on our firm as well. And we're a very small multifamily office and it's just the, the size and scope of the cyber threat that is happening out to any business out there these days is, is huge. And yeah. uh, if you don't have that barrier, if you don't have the protective cybersecurity firm in place, then you're, you're just, there's just no way you're going to make it in my yeah. opinion. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And so, so now we look for, for leaders in that segment where they've got great backing, great, great market size, all, all those things that we look for. Uh, the other segment we've recently been paying more attention to is what we call SMB tech. That's small and mid-sized business hmm. uh, adopting technology. And the reason for that is twofold. First, 100% of net new jobs 
comes from small businesses. So that's the one part of the economy that generates new employment. That's interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. The second percent of net new jobs. Can you explain that for a minute? Yeah, there's not much to explain. If you think about old line companies like Ford and GM and FedEx and by and large. I guess I'm just um, thinking I live in such a tech town where, you know, Apple is exploding and Google's exploding and Meta takes an entire building and they're building a server factory and Temple. And, you know, the, like the amount of jobs that they're adding there. I had a friend just all onboarded at Walmart and he onboarded with like 600 people in one day and, and he's an exec. So it's, you know, I look at that, I'm like, those are all big businesses. So that's why I'm having a little bit of a disconnect. Cognitive, so maybe it's a, it's a net, it's a net in the big Yeah, but business. what about all the jobs that were destroyed in those large corporations? So that in GM, they don't, they fire millions of people because they've automated some of those jobs out. So in terms of net new jobs, small businesses net create more, net create create more, 100%, almost 100% of net new jobs. So in in any case, small businesses are also kind of feisty and, and to the extent that they have to spend money on technology, they only spend money on technology that is essential, Right email, <laughs> yeah, VoIP, credit cards, their website. I have 20 or 30 different pieces of software, you know, my Adobe Illustrator and yeah. my, yeah, you know, yeah, just sure. accounting software, my QuickBooks. It just goes on my expense software. It just goes on and on and on and on, but I couldn't live without these things. Correct. Right. I can't be in business. So we invested in a company called Zen Business. Yeah. And Zen Business is a is a famous is a big Familiar. company in Austin mm-hmm. and uh they they start with formation. So mm-hmm. uh about 3 or 4 million businesses get started every year. In fact, that spiked during COVID. So what we like about SMB Tech is that in recessions, more businesses get created during those times. And yeah, if you can win resignation, yeah. Right? If you can win those those businesses right from the start, you can then sell them accounting software and VoIP software for sure. All the things that all they need going forward. So we have high hopes that that could be one of those, those big, bigger companies. So SMB tech is another segment that, that we're excited about another segment that that's sort of, and we also like all these segments are kind of like uh, what I would call uncool. Yeah, it, for the sure. Cool kids in venture, like that's stupid or that'll never work, or like you know, that's not very sexy. But you know what's cool? Making money is cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in fact, I, I, I saw another um, someone had posted on LinkedIn the other day, and it's like the cooler it is, the less money it makes. <laughs> so maybe not hundred percent you know, true, but maybe you know in there, terms there's of- there's a very big there's a big element to that but but we we really are looking for unloved segments and uh mobility is one of those segments that also is pretty unloved so we uh invested in spot hero which is a parking app oh yeah and uh if you what happens in recessions well we looked it up in boom times you know parking continues to go up in recessions it dips down like 5 or 6% parking and by the way, what's happening in parking? More and more people are parking because they're driving in. They're avoiding subways for COVID, COVID reasons and other reasons. But they're also more and more likely to pay on an app. 
mm-hmm. than to pay cash in person. So more and more propensity, only one or 2% of people were paying over an app like Spot Hero, and they own 70 or 80% of that market. Now it's closer to like 20% and growing, right? Yeah, it's, it's real I, similar. I guess Spot Hero is a competitor of Flash in mm-hmm. that, that same type of space. Yeah, mm-hmm. same segment. But 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 the point that I was trying to make was like there, you know, you have what we like to do is invest in companies whose time has come. And more and more people are are paying in this way, finding space, parking in this way. And they have some very big expansion plans, which are are really exciting. But the point is, is like the parking market, you wouldn't think of as like a high growth segment, but incredibly recession resistant. We're also an investor in Lime Scooter. So Mm -hmm. uh, Lime is, uh, you know, they did get hit by the pandemic, but now they're two or three times as big as they were pre-pandemic. They're generating hundreds of millions of dollars a year, up up you know 66% year on year. And uh, they're all over Texas, especially in Austin. They're doing well. They're really the leader in that segment. And that, that's another thing that, and, and the thing is, is that even during recessions, people need to get from point A to point B, right? And this is- Yeah, I sort- always found uh, that Lime scooters were very enjoyable to take in Austin until about mid-May. And then from <laughs> mid-May to early November, it was it was a it was a rough exercise depending on we were in triple digits or high 90s. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the uh I don't I think their booming months are Q3 and Q or Q2 and Q3. So maybe it's not you or I that would be zipping around or in Austin, but um yeah, I could I could absolutely uh see that. So well they, they are certainly the one of, if not the main mode of transportation during South by every year in Austin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, as I put it to my partners, like you can't get a bigger market than the, the market for walking. That's who they, that's the market that they're in. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the substitute. So we just felt that this was a segment that was here to stay and uh, was going to continue to, and they're going to continue to iterate with different modes of, of mobile short form transportation. But those are some of the segments that we've been investing over the last decade. So it's not like we've changed our spots and all of a sudden said, oh my God, there's a recession. Let's change our focus. We've always been this way and uh, we were born this way in a way. So I think as you've gone through several cycles yourself, a couple Mm -hmm. cycles yourself, uh, I think you were drawn to this, but you also didn't want to give up the upside of high growth technology opportunity. And that's really where we shine is um, uh, folks that are looking longer term. I mean, the other aspect is since, since we don't do early stage, which has, which has maybe a 70 or 80% chance of wipeout for any given opportunity mm-hmm. and is much more hits driven. Um, sure. our, our profile so far is we've, we have less than 10% of our investments are impaired, not wipe out, but are impaired in any way. And so I think part of that is because they're, they're in the growth stage. They're real businesses doing real you know, providing real goods and services to people, growing very quickly, also are, are very steady and these sort of recession resistant segments. And typically they're the category leader and it's hard to lose if you're the category leader. You might fall to number two, but that means that the number one will want to probably acquire you if that's the mm-hmm. case. So we've really created some very substantial margins of safety in the way we invest, very similar to how Warren Buffett thinks about his investment style. Um, I, I hate to compare myself to Warren Buffett. 
you know, best <laughs> investor of all time. But but he does talk a lot about margin of safety. And um, we also like being in investments in a three to six year range. You know, that feels gotcha. like more human scale. Yeah. Whereas a lot of early stage investments is a 10 or 15 year. 10 or 15 year. Yeah, for sure. And, and you're going and you, through you're going through like two or three recessions. You have no idea what's going to happen. You, and then you're waiting hard to predict years. what's going to happen in three years, much less 15. I, I mean, to even look forward and, and really plan and forecast for something you don't know. I mean, at that point, right. you just don't know. I right. Mean, it, you could no no one could have predicted COVID. Someone in some joke somewhere who had their eyes rolled at him many, many times over said, what if a global pandemic hits? And everyone's like, oh, oh God, here goes Bob Mr. again. Mr. Mr. Gates, Bill Gates actually yeah, right? felt yeah. like there was, there was some risk of that. Exactly. Um, but getting back to your original question about recession, you know, this is I, historically, this is for me personally, anytime I've invested in a recession, I could throw a dart in 2000, you know, in, you know, in 2000, 2001, 2002, or 2009, 2010, 2011, and, or a series of darts, and you would have done really well. Yeah. And so I'm, that's when I invested in metadata. The company I mentioned earlier is during a recession. And while you can make money in bull markets, it's, it's actually a whole lot easier to make it during bear markets. And so we're really excited to deploy in this type of environment. And we're fortunate to be backed by people like yourself who share the same philosophy and uh, know that there will be better days ahead and want to take advantage of the opportunities that are ahead of us. I think technology is the one segment that uh, is 30 years ago, it was only one or 2% of GDP in the stock market. Today, it's about 25%. Mm-hmm. You almost can't consider a world into, into the future that doesn't have a pretty heavy technology accent to it. It's the one, software is actually the one segment over every decade that's gone up 90 to 100% every decade. Gold hasn't done that. You know, yeah. uh, you know, oil, energy doesn't do that. Manufacturing doesn't do that. Consumer goods don't do that. Software is really the inextorable force in our society. And so having an allocation to that is really important, I, I think. Yeah. in your portfolio for especially your multi-generational types of folks. Yeah. Um, and certainly on the, on the technology front, there's a, a small firm here in Austin called Vista that has made a uh, quite the, the living on investing in software companies over the last 30 years. Well, as we wrap up here today, I had wanted to talk about the SPAC market, but we'll save it for maybe a follow-on podcast at another time, because I think that could lead us into another 25 minutes of time and, and you have to get running. <laughs> but uh, why don't we go ahead, just give us a little preview of what is next for Alpha Partners? Sure. Well, I, I mean, the, the good news is it's the past is prologue. So we're going to continue keeping our heads down, investing in category leading companies with top tier lead investors using, you know, getting proprietary access using our 725 VC network, and then leveraging that network, not only to give us access to the opportunity, but provide pretty substantial insider information about those opportunities. And then matching that against a screen where we screen for companies that are category leading, that are growing at 100% a year, that are recession resistant, that are going after massive markets, not just billion dollar markets, but 10 billion, $100 billion plus markets, mm-hmm. like, like the um, 
like those uh, acute care companies that I mentioned earlier or, or chronic care companies uh, that are, that, that, that's a hundred billion dollar market. So that's, we're going to continue to execute along those lines. We're going to keep our head down. Also, we tend to deploy a lot of venture firms will deploy over like a one or two year period of time and mm-hmm. then come back and raise a fund. We're much more like a, like a four or five year deployment phase. Because over a period of time, we want to get some vintage year diversity. And many, I'm an investor. I'm a big investor in my own funds. Uh, Folk, you know, obviously families like the Pritzker family are invested. And these are people I've known 10, 20, 30 years. I want to make sure, I want to continue doing what I do because I love what I do. But I think it's prudent to, to go slowly. And if you have, and be patient. And if you have let's say a hundred opportunities in any given year. Sure, you could deploy into 10 of them, but why not pick the best four or five of those instead of 10? And so that just forces us to be even pickier than, than we are normal. And it, it makes us a little different than the rest of the industry, but I uh, feel very blessed to have been able to take this path. And thanks for uh, giving, get, you know, inviting me onto your uh, podcast. This, is, this has been fun. You bet. And, and for those reasons and many more, we're, we're proud to be a partner um, with you guys and look forward to watching and being a part of the continued success uh, as you keep your head down and do what you do best. So Steve, thanks for joining me today and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of or liability for decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.